Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Amen. It's so wonderful once again. I want to take the opportunity to thank you for the invitation on behalf of Sean and I. And it's always a joy just to be with the saints of God all over the, the world basically. And I want to commend you for coming out on a Saturday morning. It shows your love for the word of the Lord and your priority for the kingdom of God. Amen. You could be shopping, you could be out having breakfast at one of the nice diners in Port Alfred, oh, but you are here, amen? And so uh, the esteem for God's word and the priority for the word is something we need to recover and get back to the body of Christ, amen? And I uh, trust you had a good sleep, everyone had a good sleep? Remember he gives to his beloved in his sleep, amen? Unless the Lord builds a house, they that labor, labor in vain that... That builded, it is vain to stay up late and to rise up early, for he gives to his beloved in his, in his sleep. Amen. And so I trust that you are refreshed and that your intimacy with Father is growing. Amen. Uh, we must become intimate with, with, with Christ, with Father. Amen. Yesterday we concluded on this slide where we started to explore the book of Ruth and to demonstrate some of the principles that we have been studying from the case study of Ruth. Ruth is the eighth book in the Bible. It's after seven. She herself is better than seven sons. The number eight depicts new beginnings. She's not seven. She's better than seven. Seven denotes perfection. Eight denotes going beyond perfection. And the spiritual symbolic meaning of the number eight is new beginnings. Everyone say new beginnings. Amen. And I will demonstrate to you how this girl, Ruth, this depiction of a perfected son, is able to shut down an era of lawlessness depicted by the period of the judges, the book just before Ruth, to shut down that era and to initiate a brand new phase of God's dealings with Israel. But it all started in a domestic dwelling unit in Bethlehem of Judah. So I don't want you to underestimate things that start in smallness. Don't underestimate what God is doing in this local church. What God is doing here in smallness can have a huge ripple impact upon a whole community And not even a whole town, even a whole generation. And not even a whole generation, but generations beyond its time. Amen? And so I really want to encourage you. Yeah, a little insignificant Moabite. She's not even a Jew. She's not even an Israelite. She's foreign to the commonwealth of Israel. God uses her and engrafts her into his global purposes and plans. Amen? You might be small you might consider yourself insignificant in terms of the playing out of God's purposes globally in the affairs of the church and the kingdom. But I want to encourage you, if you're diligent, if you're faithful, 
And if you execute the purposes of God, um, following protocol and with order, with rectitude and righteousness, and what is done in smallness, God will use as a catalyst to activate change in the global arena. Amen? So tell your neighbor, we are not insignificant. You see, the story we are about to unfold to you relates to a small domestic dwelling unit in one of the, the least towns of Judah, Bethlehem. Huh? Bethlehem, least of all the towns. Right? Insignificant. Totally out of the scheme of the corporate doings of God, yet God uses what He's done there in private, in the backdrop, at the backside of the grand scheme of things, to initiate change structurally in the nation that will forever, forever change the course of history of the people of God. In fact, what is happening in the book of Ruth is the doings of the Lord to actually bring about the church into existence. For Jesus would ultimately be born from David's line. And David would be a product of the union between Ruth and Boaz. They would beget a son who was Obed. Obed would beget Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. David is of the tribe of Judah. From Judah's line, Jesus, the Davidic line within Judah, Jesus would ultimately come. So what we're dealing with here, don't just see this in its smallness as a small scenario, case study. See its ultimate, fullest result. Amen? Sometimes when you operate in the nowness of something, you fail to realize its completed process. Jesus said, or the book of Hebrews says of Jesus in the Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Sometimes you need to endure your cross being focused on what is the result of it. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And I want to encourage you, I always work diligently now to see the final product. I always keep the final result in my mind. And I try to even train my senses. There are some results of my work in the kingdom now that will not be experienced even in my time. But even when I'm gone from this earth, what I do now can set structure, can set templates, can set context for those coming after me to take the purposes of God further and higher. You never ever work short-sightedly. That's why you work with diligence and you work with excellence in everything you do. Amen? And so I want to encourage you to be a Ruth. To be ruthless in the season is obsolete. <laughs> Ruth is the embodiment of perfected sonship. Again, I want to remind you in Ruth 4.15, she is described as better than seven sons. That is a key. That is a hermeneutical tool. Hermeneutics is the art or the science, rather, of studying the scriptures. And you need tools, lenses through which you need to look at when you read the Bible. Much of the scriptures are allegorical, symbolic. They are types and shadows, particularly in the Old Testament. So when we read this narrative, this comprised of four chapters... When we read this narrative, we don't just read it as a story that can be told in Sunday school. 
when you read this, Ruth is automatically categorized as a son. And she is described as a son to Naomi. This is addressed to Naomi. That automatically would cast Naomi in the role of father or spiritual father. So this is not simply a mother-in-law, daughter-in-law um, story. This is a narrative about principles governing the relationship between a spiritual father and his spiritual son. Right? It's just modeled for us in the case study of an actual historical account that occurred in Bethlehem of Judah after the period in Israel called the period or the time of the judges. So it's very important that you decode. Do you know that Proverbs, I think it's 17, says, it's the glory of God to hide a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search the matter out. God is a genius at how he hides himself in the word. That's why the scriptures do not make plain sense to the casual and ordinary reader. You need someone to explain the word to you. Amen? The word is not light. Although Psalmist David said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word is light, but the word cannot give light until there's an entrance into it. So you would say in the same psalm, the entrance of your word brings light. It is light, but no light is brought until somebody provides understanding of it and you enter into the light of the word. The word entrance there is the Hebrew word petach. It literally means to make plain or to throw something wide open. Amen? What we're going to do this morning, we're going to throw the book of Ruth wide open. Amen? See things we've never seen before. Look at things we've perhaps seen before but never under, under understood. Amen? So are you ready to go on a journey? So it's the glory of God to hide a matter. God hides principles in the scriptures that need to be decoded. But it says it's the glory of kings to search it out. And I want to encourage you, when you now read the Bible, you're going to search. You cannot, you, can, you cannot just read the Bible. You have to inquire. You have to diligently dig. Do you know treasures are usually not found near the surface? The best treasures are found deep underground. So whenever I read my Bible, I consider myself a miner in the Spirit. Not miner, not M-I-O-R, M-I-E-R. I'm digging for gold. Because right? God hides things in His Word, and He says it's the glory of kings to search it out. Question, are you a king? Yes. Yes. And He is the king of kings. Right? He is the king of all of us kings. So your kingship is defined by your capacity to search the things that God has hidden. Kings rule, not so. When you discover things that God has hidden in His Word, you know what happens? Revelation empowers you to rule, to express dominion in life. The moment you get understanding of something God has hidden, it actually empowers you to obey it and to express it practically in life and also experience the results attendant with it. Amen? The truth does not set you free. Jesus did not say the truth sets you free. He said you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth that you don't know will not set you free. 
It's not truth that sets free. It's knowledge of the truth that sets free. Right? He says you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth that you don't know does nothing for you. Hmm? So the moment truth and the, the entrance of God's word brings light, there comes liberty to experience it within your life. Amen? And so I pray that truth will set us free this morning. Amen. Now when you read, when you read the book of Ruth, I just want to quickly give you a panoramic overview of what the characters in the story symbolically allude to. Naomi would be a spiritual father to Ruth. Ruth obviously would be a spiritual son to Naomi. Boaz will be a representation of Christ himself, primarily, but Boaz is also a spiritual father to Ruth and Naomi in some senses in Ruth chapter 4 which I will explain if we get there. But primarily Boaz is Christ. Who is Christ? Father, Son, and Spirit. We, we, we discussed that yesterday. Obed is the boy, the baby that is born out of the marriage union between Boaz and Ruth. You get Obed. Obed's name means servant. So he represents the fruit or the product of accurate joining or accurate fathering and sonship. He is the outcome of that relationship. Okay? It's not the relationship between Naomi and Ruth that produces Obed. It's the relationship between Boaz and Ruth that produces Obed. The spiritual father Naomi's role is to bring the spiritual son into intimacy with Boaz. So spiritual fathers must bring their spiritual sons to be intimate with Christ. That intimacy with Christ will produce something in the earth, fruitfulness and execution of the will of the Lord that will forever change the course of human history. Right? So Obed is the result of these relationships. Orpah, you read the book of Ruth, not so? We gave you homework the other day. I told you I was a teacher for 17 years. So homework, giving homework comes very natural to me. Okay? You'll have an assignment at the end of this session also. Okay? Anyone who defaults, there's detention after service tomorrow. Okay. Um, Orpah is Naomi's other daughter-in-law. Remember Naomi had two sons, Marlon and Chilion. And they married the two Moabites women, Ruth and Orpah. On the death of the boys, Orpah decides to go back to a land, Moab, but Ruth clung to Naomi and went back with her to Bethlehem, Judah. So Orpah represents sonship that is uncovenanted or rebellious. The name Orpah means stiff-necked. You get some stiff-necked sons. Rebellious, disobedient. I'll discuss Orpah later. If we get there. Not Oprah, Opa. Right? <laughs> Elimelech is Naomi's husband who left Bethlehem of Judah and went to the land of Moab when there was a famine in Bethlehem of Judah and where disaster struck. So he makes an inaccurate decision leaving his family into a place of famine. For me, he represents an inaccurate father who, who based on 
external natural factors and not the word of the Lord. Remember, there was a famine in Bethlehem, Judah, and to seek greener pastures for his family, he leaves Bethlehem in Judah and he goes to the land of Moab. In Moab, he dies. His two boys die in time. And so the decision proves disastrous. Bethlehem means what? House of bread. What is bread a symbolic indication of? The word of the Lord. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out from the mouth of God. So for me, the town Bethlehem is a city or context that is representative of a place where the word of God thrives to nourish people. This man, Elimelech, leaves spiritual nourishment and his focus, he prioritizes natural preservation above the spiritual life. He leaves that context and he goes to Moab, in his mind, to save God or to preserve the welfare of his family. But he places natural things above spiritual things. And he makes an inaccurate decision. For me, it represents a fathering principle that is constantly looking at natural factors to base decisions on. We are, you should be informed by spiritual realities, not by natural realities. Right? Now, Bethlehem in Judah, where it doesn't say just Bethlehem, it says Bethlehem in Judah. So we know that Bethlehem is house of bread, present truth, is released from a valid apostolic source. The term Judah is the most accurate depiction of the apostolic spirit. Right? I won't have time to explain this to you. If you go on Thamonaidu's website, which is www.thamonaidu.com, you'll find a teaching there. He's my father in the Lord you'll find a teaching there where he painstakingly demonstrates how that of all the 12 tribes of Judah, of, of Israel, Judah occupied a leading role in the nation and they are the most accurate representation of the apostolic spirit. Tamo Naidu, that's T-H-A-M-O, T-H-M-A-O, Naidu, N-A-I-D-O-O.com. Right? Just click the resources tab and you'll navigate and um, I'm sure you'll find the link. Now, um, it's not just Bethlehem. It's not just word or bread. It's word or bread in an apostolic environment. It's an apostolic word. Right? And I will stress in the teaching today, all spiritual fathers have got to be linked to a valid and a credible apostolic source. Right? A valid and a credible apostolic source. And I know, uh, I'm a, I know a little bit of the, the journey of the history of this local church. And let me just say this to you. God has been very gracious to you. To have kept you and preserved you. Amidst all that you have experienced over the years. The Lord has kept you. Amen? And has preserved you in truth. And has kept you away from error. Right? The Lord has been very good in that regard. And you know what I feel prophetically? God is now going to take you and further refine His preservation of you 
by linking you to a valid and credible flow of apostolic doctrine that will take what you have and take it to the next level. Amen? Hallelujah. Bethlehem in Judah. Moab is a land that denies the need for fathering and ultimately kills divine purpose. Let me give you the meaning of Moab. I'll discuss this more fully later, but just for now. Moab means what father? The land literally means what father? Question mark. What father? It's a, it's a question. What father? It denies the need for fathering. The entire context of Moab says, who needs a father? What is this thing about, I need a father? I don't need a father. What father? What's this thing about fathering? So Elimelech goes with Naomi, Marlon and Chilion, leaving Bethlehem in Judah, an apostolic context where the present truth of God's word is flowing, bread is is sustaining the people, and he leaves that, and he lives in a land or an environment that denies the need for spiritual fathering. And the results are disastrous. He dies, father dies, his two sons die. If you're living in a land or an environment that denies the need for fathering, that environment will kill both father and sons. Hmm? So Moab, for us, it might not be a physical location, but for us today, Moab is a mentality in people. It's an attitude. There are many people that walk around today and they basically decry the need for spiritual fathering. And you watch their end. You watch the results in their lives. They never ever attain the fulfillment of divine purpose. But there's always disaster attendant with their lives. And I'll demonstrate this to you from the scriptures um, as we go along. Elimelech, like I said, is inaccurate fathering based on external natural factors. Okay, that's a repeat. Okay. Justin's PC changed my whole format. This looks quite nice. (laughs) Fathers and sons accomplish global divine purpose. That is what I want to talk to you about, okay? Fathers and sons accomplish, everyone say global. global. We are changing the mentality of this church from local to global. You know, the, 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 the thing with small towns is, you think sometimes small, right? And I want to break that mentality. You might, living, you might be living in a port town, a small town, but our thinking has got to be global. Amen? And I know your spiritual father here, Justin and Reddy, that have oversight over this local church. I know there's a great mandate attendant with their lives. What they do will be based locally here in this town, but the impact will go beyond this town. So you've got to break out of the parochial, limited thinking and say, yes, as sons in this house toward our spiritual fathers, we're going to position ourselves accurately because we know that our ultimate impact is not just for this town or region, it's actually far beyond this. Amen? But you've got to train your mind to break local thinking. Amen? I know local is leke, but global is better. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Amen? Break out from local 
to global. And you'll see this. This is how Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 starts. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed. So what is the context for this narrative? It was the time of the judges. Not so? It was the season of the judges. Um, and there was a famine in the land. A certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. Now, isn't it amazing? I've given you the meaning of these terms. Now, when you read just verse 1, there's a whole lot of things happening here. Not so? Right? Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges governed, there was a famine in the land. A certain man who lives in a context where the word of the Lord is shared in an apostolic environment. He leaves that and he goes to a land that de denies the need for fathering. Moab. Right? And he takes his wife and his two sons. Okay? And it says, this is the, this is the legacy of the book of Judges. Judges 21-25 is the last verse in the book of Judges. 21 chapters. In chapter 21, the last verse, this is the sum total of the results of all 12 judges. There were technically 13, but really 12. Samson was one of them. Remember Gideon? Uh, the nation, the nation's relationship with God was erratic. They would love God, serve Him, and they would decline into error, rebellion, and disobedience. They would cry to God. God would raise up a deliverer. That guy would sort Philistines out, um, uh, uh, kill the enemies of God, bring deliverance to the nation, and the nation would get back. Then they would revert back to error. God would have to raise somebody else like Gideon up again. There was Deborah and others. Right? So, but the legacy of that kind of erratic Spiritual life is succinctly depicted by this phrase. This is how the book ends. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. A king represents authority. A king decrees, not so. A king establishes rule. King establishes law. In the absence of standards, everybody does what is right in his, in his own eyes. This is the context of rebellion in which Ruth comes on the scene. It was the season when the judges ruled. Now you must understand the context. Let me just say this. It is sad to, in the church to see the same thing happening. Everybody now is doing... What is right in his, in his own eyes. And we are not um, keeping to absolute standards of right behavior, of truth, and of righteousness that God has revealed in and through His Word. But you see, in the absence of leadership, when there's no king to enforce the law of God, everybody does what is right in his, in his own eyes. So, the book of Ruth is the eighth book in the Bible. After Ruth, you will have 1 Samuel. 
second samuel then the line of the king start first kings second kings first chronicles second chronicles the first king that would be installed would be king saul thereafter king david to replace him but now let's back up right here in the book of ruth ruth would marry boaz who would produce their baby obed he would become the father of jesse who would become the father of king david before David would eventually come on the scene, God in his wisdom is already preparing the context to bring about that result of David as one of Israel's greatest kings to bring the nation back to the law of God. Not so? Now, wherever you have judges ruling, let me just say this, there are many judges ruling the church, not fathers. And so long as you have judges ruling, you will always have famine in the land. The time when the judges ruled, there was an absence of grain. No word. I'm surprised when I flick through uh, Christian television on both the predominant channel and on the free-to-air channels. And there's nothing substantial coming forth. And I'm, I'm look, there's such a paucity, a poverty of truth. And this is not being judgmental. This is an honest assessment. This is a very honest assessment. There's nothing that is, that is sometimes much of it is unbiblical, fraught with error. Right? And what I see is the period of the judges. A failed apostolic expression. There were 12 judges. 12 is always depictive of the apostolic principle. Amos 8 verse 11 says, it will come to pass when I will send a famine not of bread, not of water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Right now there's a famine of hearing the word. Now you must be careful. The Bible doesn't say a famine of the word. It says I will send a famine of hearing the word. The famine is not the word. The famine is the incapacity to hear the word. There's always, God's always speaking. It's just that not too many people are listening. Hmm? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And blessed are you who hear these things this weekend. For your ears are hearing things that not too many people hear. And I pray that your ears will be open to receive the full import and weight of the things that God is saying to us. When judges rule, God says a famine of hearing. But when fathers are installed as leaders in the house of God, and they declare the now word of the Lord, in that economy, God will unstop ears to hear what He is saying. To the churches. Now, so there was a there was uh, the, the the legacy of of the judges in the time of Ruth, famine in the land. In the last chapter of Ruth, it closes with a genealogy. It appears like this: Ruth four seventeen, a neighbor woman who gave birth, who gave him a name, saying. A son has been born to? I'll explain that. It's not Naomi's son, it's really Ruth's. But they say a son has been born to? 
Naomi. We'll, we'll talk about that later. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse and he is the father of David. The term father is referenced twice here. In chapter 1, you have fathers and sons dying. In chapter 4, you have fathers begetting sons. There's death in chapter 1, but there's procreativity and life in chapter 4. All because of the reinstallation of the father-son wineskin. If you live in a culture called Moab, in your mind, if you say, I don't need to relate to a human as a father, I can sort my relationship with God out all by myself, that is a Moabite mindset. That is Moabitish. And the results will be disastrous in your life. You will never ever attain the fullness of all that God has in, in store for you. Let's look at this in somewhat more detail. Chapter 1, verse 1. It came about in the days when the judges governed, that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of the two sons were Marlon and Chilion, or Kilion, Ephratites, right, of Bethlehem in, in Judah. Ephratite means fruitful. So they were fruitful, blessed. In fact, by all accounts, Elimelech and Naomi were multi-millionaires in their day. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with the two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Marlon and Chilion also died, and the women were bereft of her two children and her husband. Sad case here. So we have the death of a father and, and two sons, and there's the abortion of divine purpose. Repeat after me. God builds generationally. He's the father of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. The principle of fathers begetting sons is very key to the preservation and maturation of God's purposes over time. So when I see this, that father and sons are dying, it means the potential possibility of divine purpose vested in those individuals has come to a place of being aborted. Right? And uh, I want to encourage you to think generationally. To think generationally. That's why we must prioritize ministry to young people, uh, to, to, to impact the next generation, so that what we do is imparted to the next generation, so they can mature the purposes of God in their day. It is said of David in Acts 13 verse 36, that David, after he served his generation by the will of God. Some versions say he served the will of God for his generation. It says, only after that he died. I want to encourage you to serve your generation. 
God is a generational God. But here in chapter 1, we get father and sons dying. Look at the end. Right at the end, Ruth 4.14, The woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may His name, this is in reference to Boaz, the Redeemer here is Boaz, may His name become famous in Israel. May He, now Obed, the son born, may He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. The woman, the neighbor woman, gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. So here at the end, we see procreative power within fathers and sons and the attainment of divine purpose because Obviously, David would be born, and from him, Jesus would result from, from that line. So, I want to stress, I don't know why the Lord's laboring this point. You will never come to fullness in your destiny without submitting your life to the word of the Lord vested in and through a spiritual father that's able to speak the word of the Lord to you, counsel you, guide you, if need be, reprove and correct you, his intention is to form Christ within you, such that the purposes of God attendant with you will not suffer abortion. It's very, very vital that you see this. And you will see this play itself out. You can't think of spiritual fathering and sonship without exploring Matthew, or Malachi chapter 4, sorry. The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And the last verse in the last book closes like this. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you who? Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore or turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That's how the Old Testament closes. Closes with a prophecy. Closes with a promise. Now, God is saying, I will send the spirit of Elijah. I will send Elijah the prophet. Not him in person. This is talking about a frequency of grace or a specific anointing that was characteristic of Elijah the prophet in the time in which he lived. God said, I will send that. And the result of an Elijah spirit or anointing coming back to the earth would be, I'm going to turn, everyone say turn, restore. I will turn the hearts of fathers to sons and then sons to fathers. Why? God says, because if that does not happen, what's going to persist. He says the land will always suffer a curse if you cancel the economy of fathers and sons. So long as fathering is not returned to sons, and sons, the hearts of sons, are not returned to fathers, God says there's every legitimate reason for a curse to be operative. Now you can understand in the days when the judges rule, there is famine. In the absence of fathering and sonship, nothing can thrive.
Nothing can thrive. Okay? Now, this word, cursed, is the Hebrew word, herem. It means a ban of destruction. It means to be set aside for destruction. Who'd like to be set aside for destruction? <laughs> it's, just, it's like, no, I want to be set aside for blessing. I want to be set aside for favor, for promotion. But God says, if you reject the Father, Son, wineskin, I set you aside for destruction. It literally means to be physically shut in. For, as, for example, entrapped by a net. The literal meaning of this word means to be netted. You know when you net someone and you trap them in a net? Right? In the Hebrew, this means I net you, I trap you, and I drag you away to a place of insignificance. That's what the word here means. Thamon uh, Aidu explained it like this. He said, this word herem, to curse means to be reduced or to be subjugated to a place of such insignificance that the memory of you is obliterated from the earth. And that the registry of the heavens bears no record or recognition of you having contributed substantially to the acceleration and fulfillment of God's will. Right? So this word array means you are netted and you are relegated to a place of such insignificance that the memory of you forever from the earth is wiped away. From heaven's perspective, heaven's registry has no record of you ever having contributed to God's will in the earth in a significant fashion. What is a son? Ben, what's the meaning of Ben last night? A builder of the family name, remember? Sons fulfill purpose. The pattern son demonstrated in the Godhead how that there's father, son and spirit, but the son is sent to the earth to do the will of the father. So wherever you have the idea of sonship, you always have the execution of purpose. Right? You always have the doing of God's will. But if the heart of fathers are not turned to sons, sons to fathers, it says a curse will persist, herim, meaning, as we've indicated, that the individual's concern will be reduced to a place of, subjugated to a place of insignificance. You have no, no memory of you, attendant with the earth, and you bear no contribution to having significantly contributed to God's will being done in the earth. I told my church, on my death, when they bury me, on my epitaph, they must just write something simple. Here lies Randolph. He contributed significantly to God's will in the earth. Full stop. You know that's the greatest accolade anybody could have? Say, God, you have a will in the earth. I want to partner with you. I want to be one that, that fuels and accelerates your purposes in the earth. I cannot do that if I don't operate as a son. Right? If you negate sonship, you have opted to live in a realm called cursed. Something that I don't want to live in. I don't want a ban of destruction to attend my way in God. The word turn, where it says, I will 
turn the hearts of fathers to sons. By the way, where does the turning start? What's the order? It says, I will turn the hearts of fathers to sons, then sons to fathers. I always tell leaders, don't expect to have sons in your church if you don't model yourself as a father. It's the hearts of us as leaders, of all the pastors and leaders present. It's leaders where in the hearts of leaders the turning takes place first. Amen? And when I learned this, I started to um, change my whole leadership style in our church. I now see every member as a son, not members. I told you yesterday the epoch of membership is over. Right? I see every member, even though some of them don't see me as their father in the Lord, that doesn't change who I am. I'm still a father. You can't unchange what I am. Right? In fact, some people in our local church that don't see me as a father get most of my kindness, favor, etc. doesn't change who I am. Right? I often say to people, you might not see me as your spiritual father, but at least acknowledge me as the father over the house. You will always be a father, irrespective. Your fathering is not dependent upon who regards you as a father. You know what God said to Abraham? I will make you a father of many nations. Fathers are made by God. I will make you a father. And I want to be a father to everybody. Right? And I try to practice this ardently. Amen? I will talk just now about how you determine your spiritual father. That's some, another separate consideration altogether. God says, I'm going to turn. Who's going to turn? God. He says, I will send the spirit of Elijah. And um, the Elijah grace has got to, re, has got to do with reconnecting that which is dislodged from headship. Headship now is fathering. And God will join the body back to the head. This will happen on a corporate, uh, sort of global scale. Um, and I want to talk about that now because it's a separate teaching altogether. Yeah, I'm talking simply domestically, that in the context of a local church, um, it is essential that every person start to relate to their leader as a Father in the Lord. If you are in the congregation, but you do not, cannot, cannot honestly say, that is my spiritual father, but I choose to stay in the house, then at least acknowledge the man as a father in the Lord and over the house. Amen? And honor him as such. But it's essential that you find your spiritual father. Right? But for 90% of the people in a local church, they will relate to their pastor as a Spiritual father, because he's the one that is teaching you. He's the one training you. He's the one uh, sharing the word of the Lord to you. It's very important that we understand this. I like this meaning of turn. I will turn the hearts or restore. The Hebrew word is shab, and it means to reestablish. You know, God is reestablishing the order of his house. Amen. And let me just say this to you. I don't know if I have it there. Okay, I think I do. Let me just get... Get, get past this thought. The concepts. Everyone say restore. Say redeem. 
The word redeem or the concept of redeem, redemption and redeemer occurs 20 times in the book of Ruth in four chapters. Variations of this word, redeemer, redeem, occurs 20 times. Amazing, eh? So once you've read the book, you have to conclude that redemption is a major theme in the book. What was lost is now going to be recovered. Amen? Would like to recover what was lost. Amen? Would like to recover what was lost in your life. I really believe we are in a season of great restoration, of great redemption. But God wants to first recover and redeem the wineskin, the principle of fathering and sonship. And you know 20 is one less than 21. There's no big revelation about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pure maths. Pure counting. Right. So in, in biblical numerics, allegorically or symbolically, the number 20 spiritually signifies waiting in expectation. Waiting in expectation. It's one short than 21. Now 21 is 3 times 7. The number 3 denotes completeness and the number 7 denotes spiritual perfection. So it denotes the idea of heightened expectancy that one would come to completeness and spiritual perfection. Right? So it's one less than 21. 21 is spiritual completeness and perfection. 20, and you'll see this in some credible works on biblical numerology by authors like E.W. Bullinger. Right? And he suggests that this 20 position, the number 20 anywhere in the scriptures, denotes that there's a sense of expectancy that we are going into a stage of completeness and spiritual perfection. And does not Ruth embody this? Things have gone horribly wrong in Naomi and Ruth's life. Right? But there's great restoration for both of them. And there's a sense of anticipation, the sense of expectancy of a restorative, redemptive move of God that's going to restore them back to the original design of God for their lives. And I sense this very strongly. I know that for many of us here, God is about to complete. God's about to bring completeness to things that you deem incomplete. God's about to bring perfection to, to areas that lack perfection in your life. Everyone say, my Redeemer lives. Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. The redemptive act of God is about to accelerate. Do you know what the meaning of Boaz is? The meaning of Boaz is quickness. Quick. Tell your neighbor, our God is fast. <laughs> you know what Naomi at one stage says to Ruth? Don't, don't worry. That man Boaz will not rest until the matter is sorted out. Right? He liked there's an acceleration to the pace of the book when you come near the end of chapter 3. And Boaz institutes a redemptive process to buy the, the land back and to marry Ruth. But there's a, a sense of heightened acceleration in the narrative. And I believe God is doing a quick work in our day. Amen? You know? I want to encourage you. 
God says, I will hasten my word to perform it in your day. So don't defer for too long. Let me just say this. Don't even try and work this thing out in your head. Because he says, I will turn the heart, not the head. Yeah, with your spirit. Don't rationalize too much with your thinking. Let the turning take place in the heart. In the inner man. Where it truly matters. And the, the word redeem is gul or gaul. It means to buy back. To redeem, to buy back. Now, Paul was a spiritual father to the Corinthians. Justin, you need to tell me when to finish up there. Give me some time. Half past. We're using a calendar today. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, we break in 15 minutes for tea or 20 minutes. Paul became a father to the Corinthian church, he says, through the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians 4 from verses 14 to 15. Paul says, you might have many teachers, but I became your father through the gospel. Right? The word became or begotten in other versions is the Greek word genoa. Genoa. We get the English word gene. And you know your genetic component within the parent plays a large determining factor of how the child will look and behave one day. Right? Paul is saying, I became your father through the gospel. In other words, it's, it denotes how that in spiritual... Sorry, let me put this back up for some of you are still writing. In spiritual fathering and sonship, whatever is in the father will be in the, will be in the son. Whatever is in the father will be in the son. Right? The spiritual genetic component within the father which should be after Christ will be in the, the Son. Okay? And that is implanted or imparted through the word, the seed. The seed, the gene is in the seed. The seed of the word of God that is transferred from one, from one to the other. Now, let's look at some spiritual fathering myths. Because people have weird ideas about spiritual fathering. Firstly, your spiritual father is not necessarily the person that led you to the Lord. Timothy was Paul's son in the Lord, the Bible teaches, but Timothy was not led by Paul to the Lord. Paul, Timothy was already serving God when Paul met him. But when they met, there was something that happened that brought these two individuals Turning in the hearts. Everyone do this. There was a turning in the hearts that connected them as father and son. Right? So the person who led you to the Lord is not necessarily your spiritual father. They might be, but not necessarily so. Secondly, your spiritual father does not necessarily have to be of the same nationality or race as you. Isn't that obvious in this house? <laughs> Spiritual fathering is about the importations of grace, not race. Right? Importations of grace, not race. You'll be surprised. You know, we travel quite widely. You'll be surprised about how many, how many people in the kingdom are still racist in the heart. Okay? 
And they say, I will not be fathered by anyone that's not the same color skin as me. Or the same nationality as me. Right? I'm fathered, my, my father in the Lord is Tamon Aidu. He's Indian. A short Indian man. If I look at everything external, and if I judge by externalities, probably I will not opt to have connected to him as father. But you don't judge a man based on outside appearances. You must train your senses to discern the grace of God that he carries that you must connect to. It's the grace that fathers you, not the person. Sometimes you can forgo the grace because you are looking at the outward vessel. Amen? A large section of the church needs to actually repent of deeply entrenched racism. Something that is hindering the purposes of, of God. Amen? Thirdly, your spiritual father does not necessarily have to live in the same area, city or province or country as you. Right? Something called remote fathering. Do you know, I think it was King Josiah, he had no immediate role models of kingship in his day after which he could model his own kingship. Because every king previous to him and in the immediate past were all wayward and sinful. But you know what the Bible says? This king came on the scene and he walked in the steps of David, his father. Now David lived several decades before him. He was now long gone and dead. It's sad that this guy couldn't find any human being in his immediate environment to provide fathering. Right? And so he patterned his life, he consulted the records after David's example. In a local church, it is obvious that 99.9% of the time, your pastor will be the one that is fathering you. But did you know every pastor needs to be fathered himself? Yes. Right? I am fathered, I'm the leader of a congregation, but I'm fathered by my apostolic oversight to whom I relate. Okay? You can't father others if you yourself haven't learned to model sonship to somebody else. Amen? And so this is very, very vital. My father lives in Santon, I live in Durban. But technology makes it so easy to access the truth. Let me just say this. The person doesn't father you. It's the grace of God in the Word of God that He carries that fathers you. What is essential? I don't even have to have personal, physical contact time. But so long as I can get a hold of and plug into the resource of grace vested in the teaching and the Word that He carries, I become fathered by the Word of God released through Him. Now obviously, the ideal would be to have physical Concept, but that is not the criterion. I'm trying to break some myths. Because if you go out with the wrong idea, you're going to use wrong benchmarks to, to decide spiritual fathering. Amen? My father doesn't even have to wish me on my birthday. I won't get offended. <laughs> People say, you never wish me on my birthday. You're supposed to be my spiritual father. I said, listen, if I remember, I will. Please, I will. Facebook helps me to remember sometimes. <laughs> but am I fathering you? What qualifies me as your father? 
Do I have the Word of God, grace grain, that is flowing to you to configure Christ in you? That is the criteria. Hmm? Hallelujah. I know we're breaking some things in your mind. I can feel it. <laughs> Hallelujah. Uh, I said physical proximity is secondary to your proximity. Uh, sorry, physical proximity is secondary. Oh, something wrong with the sentence. In any case... And your access to the Word of God that the spiritual Father releases. And technology allows for easy access to revelation, teaching, guidance, and, and counsel. I meet my spiritual Father regularly. In fact, let me just say this. In spiritual fathering and sonship, who pursues who? The Son pursues the Father. Elijah was the spiritual Father too. Elisha. And who pursued who? Initially, Elijah saw Elisha um, with oxen and he said, Come, follow me. And he threw his mantle over him, remember? And the moment that relationship was inaugurated, the spiritual son, Elisha, did not leave Elijah out of his sight. In fact, Elijah tried to discourage him. But the son said, Wherever you go, I'm going. I'm not letting you out of my sight. Let me, let me encourage you, saints, this morning. You will derive the greatest benefit from spiritual fathering and sonship based upon your personal pursuit of the grace of God vested in and through your Father. Amen? Every Monday morning, my first order of business is to listen to the sermon that my spiritual father preached the previous day. Go onto his website and I access it. I listen. Why? Because I'm submitting myself to that counsel, that word. Amen? Whenever he has conferences, I'm the first to register. I am there to listen to the word of the Lord. If he makes an appeal for support of any kind, I will do everything in my power to use my talents, skills, abilities, financial resources, spiritual resources to support the initiatives that God has laid upon his heart. That's sonship. Amen? And I'll demonstrate these to you from the scriptures shortly. Spiritual fathering does not necessarily, your spiritual father does not necessarily have to have a large or small physical following of people. You know, people say, um, I'm going to decide my, that guy is going to be my father because he got the biggest church in the city. Using the wrong yardstick. You can have the biggest church in the city, but it can be so alien to present truth. The smallest of the size of his congregation is no yardstick to gauge who fathers you. It does not necessarily have to have a large or small building with a large or small church membership, the size of his congregation. A spiritual father does not necessarily need to have indications of a successful ministry based on wrong standards or yardsticks that people usually measure success by. How he dresses, the kinds of cars he drives, etc. Those are all carnal external means of ranking the spirituality of a man. Amen? I've heard this. The reason why I put this, we've heard this in Durban. Maybe not here in Port Alfred. We heard this in Durban. The guy said, 
oh, that guy's going to be my spiritual father. Um, because check the cars he drives. <laughs> check the house he lives in. No. Wrong yardstick. Wrong measure. Wrong measure. I said well, this at the bottom as well. Oops. What did I do? Is it me? It's me. And at least it wasn't me. Okay, how do I get this back up? Let me talk while we try and... So I think I pressed this button. Your spiritual father does not even necessarily have to be male. Females can be spiritual fathers. I know that's a topic of great debate, but uh, that is my view. And it's the view of the household that we, and the tribe that we emanate from and, and belong to. So I pray that um, um, you understand some of these myths, yardsticks, inaccurately so, that people use to judge spiritual fathering. Oh, sorry? Age is not a factor also. So long as there's maturity. You know what Paul said, or John writing, he says, I write unto you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. You will see how that, I have a slide up here, uh, in which it says spiritual fathers must be have an accurate representation of the Heavenly Father. What qualifies me as a spiritual father is if I'm accurately representative of my Heavenly Father to the people that I regard as my sons. There must be a level of great maturity, of great spiritual understanding, especially in the Word of the Lord that God is currently releasing. Because it's by the word of the Lord that grace flows. The topic of grace is one of my favorite areas of study. But by the word of the Lord, grace will, grace will flow. So the impartations of grace from father to son come by the word of the Lord. That is the greatest factor that one must consider when determining spiritual fathering and, and sonship. Amen. So we, we left on this. This is, he must represent the, the Heavenly Father. There must be impartations of grace to the Word. One who is relevant, releasing a present day Word. One who has become the Word he proclaims. This is very important. He must live out everything he teaches. He must be, he must be the Word made flesh to you. Okay? There must be no hypocrisy. The witness of the Spirit and the voice that turns you. This for me is one of the key things. Listen carefully. How do you know that you are a son of God in terms of your divine relationship with God as your heavenly Father? It says the Spirit witnesses with my Spirit that I am a son of God. Same thing in spiritual fathering and sonship. You will have an internal knowing, a witness of your Spirit that that's the person that you need to relate to. There will be a jumping in the womb, I call it. Remember Elizabeth was pregnant? Mary was pregnant? Six months apart from the pregnancy, remember? And when they met, John the Baptist leapt in the womb. There's this feeling, I call it jumping in the womb. In your spirit there's a witness that you will know. When I met my, my spiritual father, for the first time I saw him, when he opened his mouth, he taught a sermon the word of the Lord. I knew in the first five minutes, my father, 
in the Lord. That's going to train me in the ways of God. It's just, everyone say witness. Besides all the other factors, there's an internal knowing that no one can teach you. It's something you have to discern by the, by the Spirit of the Lord, deeply inside, inside of you. And the ultimate objective is to form Christ in you. Christ to the fullness in you. Let me just say this. If in your relationship with some man that claims to be a spiritual father, and there's no forming of the image of Christ in you, something is drastically wrong. Because that is the ultimate end of the, the goal of that relationship, is to guide you and mature you in the fullness of all the ways of, of Christ. Amen. Now, quickly, I'm going to leave some of this out. I want to just maybe close this session off with this. You see, it's very important that your spiritual father must be current with the present demand and proceeding word of the Lord. Or at least be connected to an authentic apostolic fathering source that is. It's not just good that your spiritual father is a good preacher or a good teacher. He can be teaching a very good word. But the thing is, is that word a relevant now present day word? Is it something... In other words, is he, is, he, is he compatible and is he relevant to what the throne is currently releasing to the earth? Or is he missing that? Right? Or is he, or is he missing that? You could be claimed to be fathered by someone not embracing the new things God is doing. Your fathering then will be obsolete. Because your father is not progressive and current with the now speakings of God. It's very important you understand this. In, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15, it says, How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of, of good things or good, or good tidings. Now, the feet must be beautiful. Not so. It says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The one that is sent to preach the word must have beautiful feet. Now, please don't look at my feet. This is purely symbolic. What is, what is the word trying to tell us? The Greek word is heroios. Heroios is a derivative of the Greek word kairos. For opportune time, a now time, epoch in God. So the word beautiful relates to, simply means, belonging to the right hour or season. In other words, a timely word. It also means flourishing. Right? So, if, if you say, Randolph, how beautiful are the feet, is the one that is sent to me, who brings me good news. What you are saying is, the word you carry is for the right hour, for now. It's for the right season. It's a word in season. It's a timely word currently being released from the throne. If you understand this, you would soon realize that many men of God do not have beautiful feet. Can be preaching stuff, but totally out of sync 
with what God is currently stressing. We are in a new season called the apostolic. There's fresh word. There's fresh rhema. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds, not precedes. Currently now is proceeds out of the mouth of God. You need a proceeding word, not a preceding word. Hmm? And I'm so glad that we are connected to such a one in the Spirit. Really, it has been refreshing to sit under teaching and realize this is what God is currently saying. And we are locking into it. Amen? So I pray that these uh, principles will help you. And I want to encourage you. For local church, for, for members in a local household of faith, 99.9% of the time, your pastor will be your spiritual father. But I pray that even today, there will come a witness in your spirit of these things. These things will be ratified and confirmed in your spirit. There will be a witness. Amen? And that every inaccurate yardstick that people decide to measure spiritual fathering will be discounted and that we will appreciate now the word, the current word, the present word of grace that flows. And that we will connect with the one that is sent. How shall they preach unless they are sent? There are certain people that God will be sent to you. And there will come a recognition in the Spirit. My Father in the Lord. We don't deify men. Please hear me. This is not putting men on a pedestal. Because that will be idolatry. We don't worship them as God. We don't even allow our worship, our honor of them to eclipse the place of the Heavenly Father. They are purely there as a representational principle designed to mature Christ within all of us. Amen? We'll continue in the next session, but understand we're going to break for tea now. Bless you. Amen?